David Elaku, and this is The Knowledge, a place to consider big and emerging ideas for anyone obsessed with learning more and living better. Each week, I'll share what I'm learning and speak to a variety of guests to hear what they've learned about navigating the world around us. This week, I'm speaking with Yurena Okonkwo, the founder of Kashmir, a luxury fashion fintech platform that's already helped young women save three million pounds. She's helping educate young women about conscious consumption and changing the way that we save. If you love this episode, please do share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a review. What is going on in the life of our favorite founder? How's life? Life is interesting. There's a lot of things going on, you know, running a business, fundraising for the business, trying to have a personal life, (laughs) a social life. All my friends have told me they haven't seen my face in years, so I need to sort that out. (laughs) You included. Yeah, planning a wedding, planning two weddings, actually, because, you know, as a Nigerian, you can never just have one wedding. Wow, that is a lot. (laughs) Okay, tell me more about the business side of things. Because for anyone that doesn't know, you're the founder of Kashmir, which is an amazing business. But I'll let you describe it in your own words. Yeah, sure. So Kashmir is a savings app designed for the next generation of aspirational consumers, aspirational female consumers, (laughs) helping them save up for their favorite luxury products and experiences in a much more financially responsible manner. So the current iteration for Kashmir is a savings app that helps young women save up for their favorite luxury fashion and beauty products without them having to get into debt or, you know, dip into the other important savings, reduce their living standards or, you know, rubber bank and so we've got partnerships with a bunch of luxury retailers like Selfridges, Harrods, Farfetch, Harvey Nichols and so on and you know what we're really building in terms of our big vision is to empower women to be good with their money so that they can have access to the lifestyle that they want so not just about helping them save up for luxury fashion but also looking at what are these other key life moments and what lifestyle do they want to live in the future and how can we get them to um, make those good you know, make this good financial habit so that they can actually achieve their desired lifestyle. I love it. I actually really love the idea of the business as well, particularly because, as you know, I'm very fond of saving and, you know, hoarding <laughs> away as much as possible. But how did you get into it? Where did the idea come from? And also, was it strictly just due to your background? Because I know you were a financial advisor before. Yeah. So it was kind of like really random and it was due to a bunch of reasons. So, you know, my background, I work as a financial advisor at a private wealth management firm in London and basically managing investments for high net worth individuals. But then I'm someone who, I've, you know, for the past I don't know, 15 years or so, I've been a luxury consumer or lover or whatever. So, I've, you know, I grew up loving Gossip Girl and wanting everything in the wardrobe and so on. You know, I grew up reading Vogue and all of that stuff. But yeah, so it was kind of like, basically the idea came to me, I was in Harrods with my friends and I basically saw a pair of Christian Louboutin heels and I was like, I need them. And I tried it one and it was perfect and all that. And then I looked at the price tag, I was like, oh crap. And the, sh- the shoes were about, I mean, they, were, they weren't too ridiculous. They were about £650. And, you know, a part of me was like, mm, I could pay for it. You know, I could buy it. I could use, I had money, I had loads of money in my savings account and all that. 
And then the other part was, oh, yeah, I mean, I could also use my credit card. You know, it wasn't like I didn't have any money or options to do it. But, you know, but the other side of me was like, you know, that's not really responsible. I can't just, you know, impulsively drop £600 on a pair of shoes I hadn't budgeted for and stuff. I mean, no way in that tax bracket for me to be able to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I ended up buying the shoes. And then later on, I was just thinking to myself that, like, you know, if I had a special stash of cash or, you know, like money that was earmarked towards treating myself to all the nice things that I love, then I wouldn't have, you know, felt that guilt. Um, because like I said, the problem wasn't that I didn't have money or options. It was just that those options were not necessarily the most financially responsible options to take at that given point. So that's kind of how the initial idea just, like, you know, got planted into my head. And then from then on, I just started to do a bit more search into understanding, you know, what the you know, fintech landscape was looking like. Because at that point, I didn't, I didn't even know the word fintech existed because I came from a traditional yeah. finance background. And, you know, that's it's a completely different world to this tech world. Like, they don't mix at all. So I started doing a lot more research into that and then also looking at who my potential target audience could be and sort of understanding their seeds towards luxury and spending and saving and credits and all of that stuff. And there was a lot of interesting findings that came out from that in terms of, you know, you know, we're living this very hugely consumerist world where, you know, Instagram is literally telling us to buy every single thing on this planet. And they then add, you know, this Instagram lifestyle with influencers and all of that stuff. And then you then add how easily it is to get credits in terms of credit cards and, you know, buy now, pay later models and all of this stuff. So it's like a lot of young people, because of all these pressures to want to keep up with this lifestyle that most people cannot have, they tend to make bad financial decisions in terms of, you know, there's research to show that young people are spending £400 a month on luxury and seven in 10 of them are getting into debt in order to keep up with this lifestyle, keep up with their favourite influences. And obviously that's not financially sustainable because, you know, it's maybe when you're 19, 20, 21 and you think, okay, it's fine, I can do all that. But then when you're getting close to your 30s and you realise, oh, I need to get a mortgage and you re- you've messed up your credit because you were spending, you know, all that um accumulating so much credit on ASOS it's not a really good um, thing to do so yes anyway based on all of that stuff I decided rather than look at if I look at the existing savings apps already out there they're not really built with the next generation of consumers in mind because at the end of the day you know we talk about saving and investing all of that stuff but no one ever talks about why are we saving and investing and at the end of the day, savers are also spenders. You're not saving money just to accumulate it for no reason. You're saving it so you can spend it on something. So it's like in a, a way to get, I believe that a way to get young people particularly into that sort of good habits of saving their money, investing their money is to help help them picture this future lifestyle that they want to have and then get them to use, get them to start building those good financial habits so that they can achieve that lifestyle. So I feel like, you know, there's no point telling someone Oh, you need to save up for like a young person just be like, why? Because it feels like it's fifty years yeah. fifty years time. I don't need it now. But if you if you phrase it in a way that like a retirement, this is like if this what type of lifestyle do you want to have? Like you want to have paid off all your mortgage and all your debt. You wanted to be able to take two holidays a year. You want to be able to do this, this, that, and then based on that, this is how much you need, and then this is how much you need to start saving now in order to have that x amount of money i feel like when those conversations are being had then young people are will be more likely to engage with it but when you just say save invest whatever like no one's really going to engage with that so i decided that you know i want cashmere to be that product product that really understands you know you as a customer you as a consumer what are your goals and aspirations and how can we help you 
build those financial habits now in order for you to achieve that, whatever the time scale is. Yeah. Is that, why do you think that young people have such a hard time saving and learning how to save? I think it's because, I mean, I, I think it's a bunch of things, particularly, you know, the society that we live in, everything is all just cons- consumption. And, you know, mm. there's, there's, there hasn't really been, you know, you know, we're not taught anything about financial education in schools. If you uh, unless your parents are very financially savvy, you're probably not going to be taught um, ta- ta- about that at home either. So we've just, you know, young people have never really been given those tools, and the, the young people who are who do tend to be given those tools are those who have, you know, parents who are financially savvy, and then obviously those tend to be the ones who are relatively wealthy. So you know, this is how the rich stay rich. But but yeah, and I think I think it's because of that, and then also then if you add a whole sort of society that we live in in terms of like, you know, there's a lot of pressures for young people to want to keep up and stuff, and there's this whole thing of like, you know, young people don't like delayed gratification; they want instant gratification and all that. So there's all of these things that sort of like play into mind like people would just rather not save that they just want to have it now i think you know and but that's and i think also it's to do with the fact that when it comes to financial education it just seems so complicated and too much jargon and just no one no, really realistically the average person just doesn't care enough and mm-hmm. when you sort of make that make it so complicated for the average person to understand of course they're no one they're not going to want to engage um so you know part of the thing that we do at Kashmir is we do like snow finance workshops for women and we make sure that these workshops are very much jargon free so that anybody literally with half a brain cell will be able to understand everything that's being said because the more you start the more you make things full of jargon the more you exclude you know the majority of the population because they don't have the knowledge or whatever or energy or time to want to start googling what does sip mean what does this mean what does that mean really sick no one's going to do that so we try and make sure it's very much jargon free and easily accessible to everybody despite and um, um, regardless of their background yeah i think that's so good that you specifically take the time to do that education piece because i think there's a lot of other platforms that claim to want to solve the problem of people not having that amount of financial education or wanting people to be able to access things and buy things that they want. And I think this ties back into what you were mentioning about the delayed gratification, not not wanting to save necessarily. And so you have some products that seem good on the surface, for example, like Klarna, I hope you don't mind me, you know, naming your <laughs> competitors. But, you know, it, it's interesting that some companies like Klarna, for example, get a bad rep because they've provided something which on the surface, realistically, could be a good thing. You know, you're providing a way for people to get credit, to be able to buy things, you're paying in installments. But then a combination of some of these other factors, like people not having the right financial education, the impulse buying and impulse shopping that a lot of people do because they want that instant gratification. And then also, I guess, the education aspect of not of providing a product and not necessarily telling people the best way to use it and utilize it. Yeah. Someone like me might look at it and be like, oh, you know, of course you can use this. You just do this. You just do that. You just do this. But if the product itself doesn't educate you on those things and you already have some bad habits that you've gotten from being on social media, just growing up around lots of other teenagers, then it can be very difficult to figure that out for yourself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think like I mean, even if you want to talk about Bayer and Kana and all that stuff, I mean, credit is not necessarily a bad thing, you know. 
and credit has always existed. You know, Klarna is basically, for example, if you look at Klarna and Affirm and Kerpy and all these other companies, they're basically like a store card. You know, we've always had store cards. We have Argos cards and Next cards and John Lewis cards and all these things. They've always existed for as long as I can remember. But the problem is that those cards, you knew what those things were meant to pay for. Like your Argos card, for example, would be like, if you needed to buy a new washing machine, let's say your washing machine broke down, you need to buy a new one. You're not going to be buying 50 washing machines. Like you're only going to ever need one, you know? And for so things like that work very well for these pineapple models work very well for those type of things, you know, like a sofa or washing machine or, you know, like things that, you know, are going to last a very long time and you only ever really need one. But, you know, I remember I, re- I read an article that, uh, what's it called? I think Affirm, one of, either Affirm or Clepe, one of them companies, their biggest 60% or 70% of their sales comes from because everyone's, because obviously pedestals oh, wow. are expensive, they're like two grand. <laughs> Most people are not going to be able to put two grand just to buy a you know, treadmill or a bike. So people pay for it in installments, which makes a lot of sense. And, you know, realistically, how many pedestals do you need? You're only ever going to need one. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I think it's perfect for those type of things. But when what I don't agree with is why am I going on ASOS to buy a twenty pound top, and the default is for me to pay in installments rather than just pay that twenty pounds? Like it literally, I've I've literally seen going on Pretty Little Thing and all these other websites for like eight pound dress, and they're telling me, oh, pay in installments. Why two pound a month when I can just pay the same? <laughs> it makes yeah. no sense because then it sort of like starts to make young people think that like oh you know like that I, sh- I shouldn't think about be- whether i can afford this or no i should just delay get that instant gratification now because come on like eight pounds really yeah. <laughs> and i think part of part of that as well is that it makes it seem smaller and more bite-sized but the issue is when okay so you sign up for this thing where you're going to be paying two pounds a month for the next four months then you sign up for another thing where you're going to be paying a hundred pounds for 10 months and then you sign up for another thing and suddenly yeah. you're, you're now you have to pay three hundred pounds a month for the next <laughs> exactly. for the next five months when you add it all up. Exactly, and that's the problem. That's the problem because, uh, like you said earlier, on paper it's not a bad thing. It's just the way mm. human beings are. Human beings are inherently greedy. You know, you're always going to want more. So if you create systems in place that encourages greed, then of course people are going to you know take the piss with this. So yeah, that's 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 my issue with them. Um, this this these phones. But you know, recently the government have said they're going to start reg- buying up later companies. And you no know, Clara announced a couple of months ago that they're going to start reporting to the credit reference agencies. So you know, oh, wow. if if you are planning on like let's say getting a mortgage, it's going to come up in your mortgage application that you're constantly using Clara. That's going to be a bad thing because that's a red flag mm-hmm. for you know. Obviously, when you're trying to get a mortgage, the mortgage the banks don't want to see that you're relying too much on credit. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of like people's usage of it. Yeah. So where does Kashmir fall on that scale? Because I know your positioning is more as a platform for saving rather than just for spending, even though you're saving to spend. So how we what we really position ourselves is more around conscious consumption because we're not telling people, oh, it's bad to like nice things because, I mean, who doesn't like nice things? I love nice things. But we're saying here's a much more responsible way of achieving those nice things. There's, you know, there's no point. I remember where early on when I was doing my research into speaking, doing like user interviews and the people were telling me that like you know, they would spend their entire paycheck on like a Chanel handbag and they will have no money left over for the rest of the month. They literally have to live off like a pasta. And it's like, why? So you're just doing all this for the gram and then there's nothing in it. Like, 
there's not no food in your cupboard. <laughs> it makes no sense, you know. But if you just yeah. paste it out for a bit, for a few months, and then you and then you know save the prayer, you can buy the that no handbag that you really want and still have food in your cupboard. You know, that's what we're trying mm. to promote that like sort of balance. Like it's okay. We believe that you can have it all. Just do it responsibly. You know, it doesn't have to be either yeah. or. I don't know if you saw. I think it was probably a few years ago now. There was that story of that girl. I think she was from Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah. Visa Bay. She was an influencer. Yes, Visa Bay. And she'd been buying all these expensive handbags, two, three thousand pounds, all of these things. And then suddenly she was asking people for money on the internet because she couldn't afford to get her visa extension or something like that. Yeah, and it's so funny because the visa thing was like a thousand five hundred, two grand. And one of those handbags (laughs) you're holding could pay for like two visas. Yeah. Um, but yeah, exactly. It, it, it's exactly that. The Instagram lifestyle is just honestly crazy. And, you know, and I just hope that <laughs> things get better in terms of more people start to understand that Instagram is not real life and, mm. you know, start to make better responsible decisions with how they uh, achieve this desired lifestyle that they want. Do you think that Instagram should have to be responsible for the changes in consumer spending and changing it changes in consumer lifestyle as a result of people using their platform. It's one of those things that would be really, really hard to do. I don't, it'd be very, very hard to do that because then it's like, okay, so if Instagram are going to sort of moderate that, then that means they'd have to moderate everything in terms of like people using filters and people making themselves look thinner and all of this stuff. And then it then becomes like, okay, Instagram is like our nanny now. Like, <laughs> mm. you know, I think it is up to us as human beings as the, uh, to actually make smart decisions. And if for people who are, who, who do understand, you know, the, the bad side of things actually actively that be vocal and speak out about all, the, all these things. I don't, I don't, I think it would just be really, really hard to get Instagram to do it because then that means they have to police every single thing on, on the platform. And mm. yeah, it, yeah. I think it's a hard balance to strike though, because my issue with Instagram and, and by virtue of that, I guess also Facebook is that it's not some innocent, it's not like a Pinterest where oh, you're the one Pinterest. putting stuff up there or you're just going and viewing just very nonchalantly. Like Instagram yeah. and Facebook are actively trying to get you to buy stuff. <laughs> They're interrupting. You're trying to look at your friend's stuff. They're throwing ads in there. And those ads are coming from cookies. They're following you around the internet, all around yeah. all kinds of sources, figuring out exactly what you like, exactly what you want. And whether you want it at that moment or not, they're just going to feed it to you and keep <laughs> flashing it in front of your face until you decide to buy it. Yeah. See, it's hard one for me because I, I, I understand that, but then from a business point of view, I see why they're doing that because I would do it. Yeah. <laughs> I would also do it myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've, we've, we've just started doing like ads and stuff with Kashmir and like, you know, <laughs> I would want people to constantly see my ads. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, but I, I, but I do think there is a, there is a balance that needs to be struck. And I think Pinterest does it pretty well. I, I just love Pinterest so much because I, I go on there and as much as, you know, Pinterest is all about sort of like curating, like, the lifestyle Pinterest is basically what cash I want Cashmere to be, but with the financial elements of it. And it's you know Pinterest is really about curating the life you want, really in pictures. But it does it in a way that it doesn't feel like intrusive. And they still do ads. Like I see Pinterest ads and stuff, and I but it doesn't feel like I'm being forced to 
purchase something so i don't know maybe i need to take a few tips from pinterest pinterest <laughs> book but yeah, yeah i do i do agree that there, there's, there definitely needs to be a balance struck with, with this whole thing I, I mean i don't know how i'm not an expert in that space so yeah i mean if facebook or instagram want to pay me <laughs> to figure it out for them <laughs> i'll happily do it <laughs> so how have you found the process of getting cashmere off the ground and what have been i guess there's two questions i want to ask what were the biggest challenges and then also what were the biggest maybe unforeseen challenges? Because I think there's a lot of things that going into setting up a business, going into the startup world, you might know or you might envisage or you might have heard these are the challenges you're going to face. Did yeah. you find that those were identical to your experience and were there other things that ended up being trickier than you thought? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the huge things I, well, I guess I'll call it a challenge was more around it was a huge learning curve for me because, like I said, I came from a traditional finance background with zero knowledge, zero contacts in this space. So everything I did, everything I learned, I was from scratch. And which in a way is sometimes it can be good because it means that you can learn a lot quicker. You can adapt because you're having to consume a lot of different types of information and within a relatively short period of time. So so that was definitely a huge challenge at the start. I mean, what I did was, you know, like I said, researching everything. I started to like network more, meet people on Twitter, go to events. There's so many times literally after work, my my previous job, I would, you know, after, I would leave my office at like 6, 6.30 to go and attend like networking events somewhere in the city and all that. And then from then on, you start to meet different people um, within the space. And, you know, active, I also think it's also important to actively talk about what you're doing because you just never know who you're talking to and you never know who they know. If I look at, for example, I think probably majority, if not all of my investors, angel investors at my cap table, I all, I all know them through either I went to an event and I met them there or I met I went to an event and I met someone who knew them. That's that's mm-hmm. literally how it's been. So like it, it hasn't been anyone who I just organically sort of had known for years. Because you know how people say, oh, like, I've known someone for 10 years and they invested in my company. No. That doesn't apply to most people. But yeah, so it's definitely important to put yourself out there and stuff. And and it, it can be exhausting. Honestly, it's not easy at all because 9.9 out of 10 times after work, you just want to go lie down and watch Netflix. But if it's something that's really important to you, you just kind of have to have to do it. Another thing is I definitely sort of like once I sort of got into the space, I you know networked with a lot of different founders and investors and all of that stuff. And you know, just to get like first hand first hand accounts from them on what it really is like to, you know, be in tech and work at, build a startup and so on. So so that when I was actually doing it myself, it wasn't like a lot of things were a bit were not it wasn't a shock to me. Because one thing I, I always say that is very different for particularly from someone coming from a traditional background is that, you know, when you come from a traditional background, you're told, you know, you go to school, you get your straight A's, you go to university, you get your degree, go, go work in a, what's it called, a, like company, like a proper company, you know, technology startup company and all that. And, you know, there's like, and it's like all about you working really hard. And if you work hard, you get what you want, all of that stuff. When you're building your company, it's not like that. Like forget about all of those things I've been told because it's really, you can work as hard as you like, as you want doesn't necessarily mean that it would translate into you being successful in your business and that's just the hard reality that you know I had to like make sure that I fully understood because building a company is you know there's a 
the that famous stat that 90% of companies fail in their first year looking for, you know, yeah. like it is really, really hard. And, you know, not everyone's because there's sometimes there are certain things that are out of your control. Like, you know, who would have predicted the pandemic would have happened and wiped out a lot of businesses. There are some things that the market is just not going to, it's the, the 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 way the, the world is moving means that there isn't a place for your company anymore. There's all these things, so it doesn't matter how hard you work, you know, it's just not going to happen. And you know, if if you now look at if you want to take it to like you know societal injustices in terms of like racial bias and things like that, you could be the most hardworking black woman in the world, but no one's going to want to fund you because they have all of these biases against you that you know they don't think like because when they, when it, when an investor thinks of who is successful. Um, founder is it's not they don't think of a black woman they think of a white man so already those doors are already shut in your face doesn't matter what your numbers are doesn't matter how hard you work and stuff so there's all these things that are out of your control that could mean that your company doesn't work so i think very early on it's always important for founders to understand that like sometimes it's out of your control i mean sure work as hard as you can to make sure your business is a success but it could also not work out I think the sooner we all sort of understand that, (laughs) the easier you'll be able to sleep at night. (laughs) We'll be right back after this break. Okay, so you mentioned you have investors and there's fundraising. Have you largely just bootstrapped? And what's that part of the journey been like? Yeah, so starting with Cashmere, yes, I bootstrapped basically funding the company through like the money I had saved up myself. Because I know I had I had uh, quite a bit of money that saved up to like basically buy a house, and then I started to invest in my company. So I'm gonna need that money to pay off very soon because I plan on buying a house soon. Anyway, so what's it called? So I yeah, so I bootstrap business, and I think it's quite good to bootstrap because a lot of times like because of like TechCrunch and all these like tech publications, you're always seeing so and so raise five million, ten million, twenty million pounds off of like an idea, blah blah. So you feel like it, automatically that is what you should do. And sometimes, you know, depending on what kind of business you're building, sometimes you, you, you need to raise in order to build the company. But for most businesses, I don't think you actually need to raise because there's been so many like improvements in technology. Like there's loads of like no code tools. There's so many things out there that can actually allow you to build an MVP product, like a you know, a basic version one of your of your products, like at least test the idea out and start to build traction. And then from then, once you can be able to prove that like there are people who actually want what you're doing, then you can then go out and raise and you could actually, actually then raise because you, with better terms from investors because you actually have something, you have some data to prove that what you're building works compared to when if for example you're a first time founder, you've never built a business before and then you're trying to raise on an idea investors are just going to look at you like what as much as a lot of investors say oh yeah we invest at idea stage nah they don't like and that's the annoying thing it's like people need to be more honest and transparent about what they look for when they want to invest in companies because as much as yeah they might say oh yeah we invest idea pre-seed but if you look at the, the founders they've invested in idea pre-seed that usually said founders who already have a huge but whereas if you're like a first-time founder you have no track record nothing whatsoever then there's not going to invest in you that's just that's just the reality of it you know it's always important to like try and do as much as you can on your own and then go out and raise because then it also shows that you actually know what you're doing because when you've had the opportunity to to wear multiple hats you become a lot more knowledgeable in your space compared to like if you let's say you raise very early on and then you just quickly hire people to take over like products and design and engineering and all that stuff and then you know you don't you are ceo just kind of like 
get the high level summary of everything and not really sort of like be deep in what they're building so sometimes so it, it does have its pros and cons but i genuinely believe that like the best way to do it is to bootstrap at the start again depending on your business if you're doing like something deep tech or whatever then you might need to race for that but for most businesses i think it's important to just bootstrap for a bit you know prove your hypothesis and then have your data and then go out and raise and then it just puts you in a much better position compared to someone who's just trying to raise with just an idea yeah and you've done really well considering one largely bootstrapping and using your own funds and also working with a really small team. I think I saw, was it from 2020 that you had processed about one and a half million in, in savings from users? Yeah. So we've actually now done 3 million. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Awesome. Quick update. Yeah. So we've done about 3 million in savings and we've done about just over a million pounds in spending the money that's been spent on the app which is pretty cool and we've always worked as a small team so right now our team is literally made up of two people me and my leading like interns and stuff in the like here and there to help but the core team has always just been like two people and to be honest i always say i want to build like an instagram because i know when instagram got acquired by facebook they had like eight people on the team and they got acquired yeah. for like over a billion or something so i'm like that's what i'm trying to do <laughs> it's possible because I, I don't sometimes i don't think like you need that many people as long as everyone's working hard and then you can actually achieve a lot with you know less people. There's a lot of automations yeah. out there. Like I live for automations. You know, so if there's a way you can achieve something great with less people rather than more, why why would you why would you do that? Because sometimes when you have too many people, people start to then you know be a bit lax because you know there's a lot more mm. cushion. Because if you think about it, like you know when you're in a corporate world, like there's bare people in it, so like you can afford <laughs> to not do as much work. Compared to like yeah. if you're in a startup, or you have less three, skin in the game. Yeah, exactly. Whereas when you have a startup of three or four people, everybody's contribution is important. If one person is slacking, it would affect everybody else. So everyone needs to sort of like pull their weight and stuff. So yeah, and I kind of prefer that sort of environment compared to like just a cushiony environment, which was what I was doing before. Yeah. Is that the kind of exit you're looking for on the topic of Instagram? So, I mean... I don't know what my ideal exit would be because obviously like the two ways is either to get acquired or to IPO. I don't know mm-hmm. what, which one I would prefer. Right now I'm just trying to build a great business and then whatever opportunities come out of that um, would be great. I mean, I always say that like, oh, it'd be great to like get acquired by like LVMH or something. That'd be amazing. But, yeah. then, but then I also would be like, oh my God, but imagine you catch my ipo So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Let me just focus on the now. <laughs> Let me focus on this. Yeah. But yeah, it will be, but I definitely would, I think I get an, um, getting to the point of IP would be great though, because particularly for the black community, because we don't really have that in the UK. Yeah. Everyone's like, you know, right now, the startup founders that I know, you know, everyone's all building and stuff. And, you know, I, I just hope like in the next, you know, five to 10 years or so, you know, we see some amazing exits from the black community and because, you know, there's loads of people building incredible businesses. So, and then what, what then that means is that if we get incredible exits, we then sort of like build the next generation of black angel investors who are actually people yeah. who have built businesses and actually have experience in that because that's <laughs> one thing that we're lacking significantly in, in within the black community. So yeah, that, that's, that's why I'm hoping for anyway. Yeah. What you said brings to mind two thoughts. First of all, I think part of the issue right now is that in order to have black exits, you need entries. You need people to actually yeah. Yeah. fund some of the people that are building companies at the moment. And I think that's 
probably part of what we're missing. Yeah. And I'd love to know what thoughts you have on that, particularly from the perspective of, I know that you have raised money from people from a variety of backgrounds and also you're very plugged into the VC scene as well. And so I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 100% correct that, like, we can't expect all these exits if no one is funding at the entry level, you know, and that we, we are really lacking that. Because if we look at sort of, like, you know, there's all these diversity reports that keep coming out every second. It's really, the next time I say diversity reports, I'm just going to, like, block <laughs> anyone that shares it because it's like we know all this information. We don't need another report. But there's the, there's the same information that keeps coming out that, like, you know, Black founders are well-educated, they're, you know, they're resourceful, they're creating jobs, they're doing all these incredible things with very limited money or either through bootstrapping or they've raised a tiny amount of money and so on. But it's like, but for some reason, they, they're just not getting funded. Like, black, I mean, black black women are barely getting funded. Like, you know, there was that report that came out that basically in the past 10 years, only seven black women had raised VC funding. Seven in the yeah. past 10 years. Like, that is just disgusting to hear. And it's and the issue is that, you know, when we look at sort of like our white white counterparts, you know, a lot of them are plugged into these networks. They do have they can they can do these friends and family rounds where they're like, Oh, I raised friend two hundred grand for my friends and family. I've definitely seen someone raise a million from friends and family. I don't know how, but they did. And, you know, like if I look at, you know, within our community, how many people can really do that? Like how many people can even raise ten K from friends and family? let alone a hundred grand, two hundred grand. So it's like if if we're not all starting we're not all starting from a level playing ground. So of course like it's gonna be harder for black black founders to even get to that, you know, series A, Series B level when nobody wants to Mm. fund them at the pre-seed and seed. And you know, the frustrating things are like I feel like a lot of like investors or people within the community within the startup board feel like oh you know let's do office hours for black founders let's do mentoring for black founders and to be honest like i just find it so insulting because it just automatically assumes that you believe black founders don't know what they're doing because the only reason why you offer mentoring at office hours is if you feel oh i need to teach them because they don't know what they're doing why can't you just give them money like we're tired of these office hours we're tired of all these mentoring give us open your purse give us the money and, you know, and as much as, you know, the, the people setting up funds to invest in black diversity, blah, 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 blah. But if you're not investing at pre-seed, I don't want to hear it. Genuinely. Mm-hmm. If you're not investing at pre-seed and seed level for black founders, and not that whole that underrepresented, underestimated, all these words <laughs> that don't really mean anything tangible, because what does, what does underrepresented really mean? Like, mm-hmm. if we're being honest, because we know that, you know, for example, if, if we look at, let's say white founders, an underrepresented white founder would be someone, a white male, a white female founder who didn't go to university, who lives in Yorkshire. That's an underrepresented. So you, if you set up a fund that says, I invest in underrepresented founders, that's who you're going to, that's technically, you can invest in that person, but then you're not, there's still no diversity in terms of like racial diversity because you're just constantly investing in like, oh yeah, this person lives in Leeds. Leeds doesn't have a huge startup space. I'm going to invest in them. That's me taking my underrepresented founder box but that's why i hate those words because they're not specific we need things to be very very specific if you say black mm-hmm. you mean black like black people people from african and caribbean ethnicity group or whatever it is so what that's that's jenny it so anything that deviates from that is all nonsense it's all just hot air i don't care enough 
like anyone says office hours blah 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 female founders office hours female founders mentoring black founders blah blah i just don't care enough so honestly yeah. rings open their purse and invest at the pre-seed seed level for black founders specifically then not much is going to change and you know it's just so frustrating that you know last year we had the whole black lives matter movement and stuff and you know all these i mean to be honest within the vc world not many funds said anything maybe like two or three said something and even those ones were like oh we're going to give ourselves a day off to think about to to reflect and i'm like i don't understand why why are people giving themselves a day off for black trauma i'm so confused they're not going to open their purse but they'll give themselves a day off work make it make sense and so yeah this whole thing frustrates me so much as you know (laughs) i'm just like oh my god I definitely get the, I was just going to say the part you were saying in terms of being specific, because I remember, I think we both saw there was the Sifted article recently and the headline is something like a third of, oh yeah, um, a third of minority companies were like unicorns. A third of of UK unicorns are founded by ethnic minorities. Okay, cool. So you're saying like 30 something percent. When you break that down and ask how many of them are black <laughs> specifically, <laughs> it's zero. <laughs> it's and it's not just zero. None of them are founded by founded by women either. So yeah. zero women, zero black people. But you're using this title of ah ethnic minority founders, there's 30%. Yeah. And then I think even beyond that, it's something like 0.2% of black founders that have received VC funding in the last 10 years. It, yeah. In terms of fr- from the total pie, the amount of that that's gone to black founders is like a fraction of 1%. So it's yeah. not even one in a hundred. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like two in a thousand or two and a half in a thousand, which is crazy. Yeah. And obviously I don't want to paint like a dire picture or anything, but I definitely think you're right in terms of the issue being that a lot of people that have great ideas can't even get past a friends and family round. Because yeah. if you can't even get that initial, let's say, 15K, just to build your MVP, just to get your idea off the ground, just to actually even afford to take the time to focus on what you're building, yeah, it probably doesn't go anywhere. And so I also think about how many great businesses have started and stopped within that period just because they couldn't get any funding, they couldn't get any support, they couldn't yeah. get things like that. Yeah, exactly. And I've seen it so many times. I've seen so many like people with fantastic ideas, you know, try and build something. But because there's there's that lack of support and I mean like financial support, it just doesn't go anywhere. And then and another thing that really frustrates me is this whole idea of like, oh, if somebody isn't full time working on their business, it means they're not committed to it. And people like it's and I, when I hear that, I'm just like, are you are you stupid? Because because a lot of people don't realize that most people are not privileged. Like you know. Mm-hmm if you don't have the privilege of like being able to leave your job or like, uh, and already have like a cushion of money that you can live off while you build your, you know, follow your dreams and build your business. If you've got a family to take care of, a lot of black people have family back home. They have to send money to, they have parents here that they need to, they're they're, they're, um, paying for, you know, people don't understand like the black tax is a real thing. So when you hear all these investors and, you know, non-black investors and people like just talking nonsense saying like, Oh, you know, you need to leave your job. Like I can only believe you're committed to your, to your business when you leave your job. I'm like, all right, cool. I will commit to this business. If you give me the money, I don't understand. Yeah. It's not a no-brainer. Like I've already showed you what I, what I can do, you know. So 
give me the money <laughs> and then I'll leave my job. <laughs> I have no problem <laughs> leaving the job. <laughs> so yeah, it's, and I've seen that so many times, just like comments that people have made in terms of like for other businesses, like, you know, be like, oh, I, I, like it's a red flag that they haven't left their job, their full-time job yet and stuff as because of that, they're not going to fund them. I'm like, yeah. And to be honest, yeah, like as much as I, I, I'm criticizing like non-Black investors, I've also heard Black investors say this too. So Yeah. <laughs> What's your experience been like from the other side of the table now? Because I know you're a scout, you're a venture scout for Back 3C. Is that something you can talk about or not so much? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, so one of the reasons why I wanted, I joined that was to understand things from an investor point of view and sort of like see what, what do investors look at when they, like what what drives the decision to make an investment. And I mean, I do think there are there's still a long way to go in terms of giving people a fair shot at things, and because I mean I understand it from an investor's point of view because when the investor looks at an investment, they want to be convinced that this is like going to return their funds. So let's say it's a fund that's worth fifty million pounds, they want to be sure that if they invest in this company, if they invest in like half a million in this company, that company is going to return that 50 million back. Yeah, it's And it's obviously very hard to tell at the early stages because there's just so many variables out there. But I think like, goes back to my point about bias is that I feel like a lot of times people don't give black founders in particular that's the benefit of the doubt because I, mm. I feel like a lot of times where black founders expected to prove so much already before investors are comfortable making this making these decisions. Like the number of times I've heard, you know, through my fundraising journey, I've heard people investors tell me, oh, like, you know, we really love what you're building. Like we love your team. We love the product you built so far. Your traction is amazing. You know, your vision is great. But we're not quite sure, we're not quite ready to invest just yet to keep us in the loop. I'm like, but what more do you want? You've already told me I tick every single box that you know investors look at look out for at seed stage. No, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's like, but then, yeah. but then you then see other companies like that they be investing, you know, that you know are like where white male or white women, and it's like they that company doesn't even have close to enough traction that you have. They probably there's just yeah. it's like pre-launch is still an idea sort of thing, and it's like so for 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 a black founder like immediately you're gonna be like, but what's why why what's the difference? And the only difference you can see is that it's to do with race and bias. And if and the things that a lot of times people like to use that whole word of like, oh, I'm unconscious bias. I don't believe in unconscious bias. I think it's all conscious. But you know, <laughs> so it's all conscious. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, but I don't know. I feel like we want to give all these people the grace to like, oh, you know, it's all conscious. They didn't know what they were doing. But anyway, so back to my point. I think like, you know, I think so, so for example, with with back the way they tend to invest is more around like sort of late seed series A companies, which are, you know, it's, it's a sector agnostic fund, but the thing is, again, back to a point about if no one's investing as black, black founders at the very, very early stage, you know, that first 50K, 100K check, you know, then how are they going to get to that Series A level? So there there are a couple of things that we've sort of like put forward to them to implement, which they've started doing. And it's still, I mean, there's still a long way to go in terms of like investing in black founders at the like pre-seed early stage, but they are making some moves to, you know, do more around that. So. Fingers crossed other funds would. Fair. Okay. I guess one of the last questions I wanted to ask is, what about, I guess, for existing founders that are out there? Two things. One, maybe what is it about your particular skill set that makes you 
able to have achieved what you have with Kashmir so far. Again, considering you have a, a super small team, you haven't had a huge influx of funding. You've, you know, largely bootstrapped and built for yourself. You're now at a point where you've had three million in saved through your through your app, through your platform. But like what would you attribute that kind of success to? And what things do you think that other young founders could emulate to be able to achieve something similar? Yeah. So, I mean, th- there are a lot of things like, you know, I mean, there's all the generic words like, you know, you need to have like grit and tenacity and discipline and all of these things. But, and to be honest, do apply, but it's more of like, how I see it is having a strong enough why. So it's like, why are you building this company? Like, what do you want to see in the world in this next five to 10 years? And how is your company going to help shape that? And if you can sort of like, you know, have a strong enough answer to that question, then that is what should be able to keep you going despite all the negative things that might come through starting a business. Because running a business is not easy at all. Like 99% of the time mm. I'm stressed. Like <laughs> I just want to crawl in the hole and just stay there forever. But yeah. I have, I know what my why is. I know what, I, I know how I want to see the world. I know what I want to build. I have, like, I know what I want to see in that sort of like keeps me going another thing is also like celebrating the small wins and it's something I need to start doing a lot more because I've been told so many times I don't do it enough and what I mean by that is like it doesn't matter how tiny it is if something's a win just celebrate it if if you're a solo founder like just you and your you as like you don't have a team celebrate with yourself if you have a team celebrate just it doesn't matter what it is so for example that it could be you just shipped like fix the new fix the bug or something on your website or your app or whatever it's like celebrate that because those little wins like keep you going because sometimes it might feel like you're not making any progress because you know there's still it's easier to see see what you haven't done compared to what you've done and I'm, I'm very yeah. guilty of that I'm always looking at oh we haven't done this we haven't done that we haven't achieved this and I forget about all the other things I've achieved so try as much as possible to like you know document those wins like even if it means every week you know you're on your team or you on your own write down every single win that you've done that week you can categorize into like small medium big and then actually celebrate that and be proud of yourself for that because then you can actually see you know i've actually made a lot of progress and it would help significantly with your mental health honestly so yeah i think those things are things that are i feel tangible things that you can do to sort of like help you keep going despite all of the madness that comes with building the company yeah can I ask how, how you found managing your mental health as well? Because between the late nights and then also everything else that you have on your plate, I know you're getting married to and you're planning two weddings. Well, one in Nigeria, one here. You're doing all these things. How do you manage to keep it all together? God, <laughs> I don't even know. I, do, <laughs> I mean, I do try and like, I definitely try and, you know, take, I don't do like too many late nights anymore compared to before. Like before, I would literally be working to like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. and stuff. But now, by like, unless there's a lot of, unless we're in like in a period where there's a lot of things that need to be done, I usually stop working at like 7 p.m. or so. And then I actually take the rest of the evening off and I just shut down like my computer, watch Netflix and stuff. I don't look at work-related stuff. Weekends, I also try and do that too. Because it does help. Because before, I was just literally on 24 7 like it got to a point where I wasn't sleeping like I was literally having like maybe two hours of sleep a day because I was constantly switched on and as a founder it's just so hard to switch off sometimes because you're constantly thinking about ideas you're constantly thinking about what you haven't done you're constantly your never-ending to-do list 
Whereas when you're an employee for a company, like the minutes five PM hits, well, if you're a normal employee, not if you're a lawyer, because <laughs> five PM law, that's when you. <laughs> but you know, for most people, pick up a bag and go home. Like well, pre-pandemic, you go home. But but yeah, but as as a founder, you just can't do that. Like you're just constantly thinking about stuff. So trying to take as much like separating like your work from your the rest of your life is so so important. Um, another thing is also trying to take holidays. Because another thing I, I struggle to do is actually take holidays because I'm just like, I don't have many people to delegate this work to. It needs to be done. So it then means I'm just constantly working. But I try, I, even if I'm, I might not take a whole week off or whatever, but like I would take like two days in that week off. And I'll maybe do like Thursday and Fridays off. So I only work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And at least I have like a four day weekend. Just little things like that just help because I know realistically I can't take a week off at this point because we have a very tiny team. I don't have I don't have the capacity to start delegating. Obviously, hopefully soon once we close our round, we'll be, I'm, I'm going to be making a few more hires. But right now, it's just not possible. So I just try and you know take those little breaks here and there as I can. Bank holidays, definitely, I love them. <laughs> I, I always even on my calendar, I schedule those holidays so I know like today I'm not working. <laughs> yeah. yeah, got one coming up, which is lovely. Yeah. There's two May, which I'm excited about. Actually, I'm going to get three holidays in May because May's my birthday is also in May. So taking yeah. my birthday off too. Also, your birthday is in May Enjoy. too. Yep, yep. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.